In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come after me, and I will make you fishers of people. Early Christianity came of age amid an interesting and conflicting set of influences. The first one, of course, was ancient Israel. The Israelites were shaped above all things by a story, the story of a small, politically insignificant group of nomadic herders transformed by a series of dramatic individual encounters with a God who chose them, Abraham, Hagar, Moses, Hannah, Elijah, Isaiah, John the Baptist. This is discipleship at its most vivid, people who turn aside from whatever they were doing and follow the word of God. None of these people were intellectuals in today's sense. Far from viewing reality with a sublime sense of detachment, they were fully engaged with the earth and with each other. In the midst of the changes and chances of their lives, they found a story that worked, a narrative that sustained and strengthened them, a narrative that no matter what happened to them would always bring them home again. That is, until the Romans came upon the scene and announced with their power and captivity that they were more powerful than God. Now a terrible thing happens when a story is taken captive because stories never should. And when a story is taken captive, it gets very rank. It turns into rigid laws and doctrines. It turns into insurrection against empire. It turns into magic and into despair. And that was the world in which Jesus arrived. And Jesus came telling stories. But Israel was not the only thing that shaped the early church, because the other, of course, was the Hellenistic world of Israel's captors. And the story that the Greeks told was very different than the story that Israel told. If, in the book of Numbers, Moses is described as the most humble of all men who had ever lived on earth, the Greeks had little use for humility. Theirs was a story of heroic pride and heroic tragedy. And the gods that they worshipped and argued with were not loving like the God of Israel. They fought with each other. They fought with people. They were capricious, and to be favored by one meant that another one wasn't going to like you very well. And so Hellenistic culture, too, split in different directions. Its military magnificence, exemplified in Achilles and Alexander the Great, was picked up by the Roman army, the most efficient that ever existed on earth. 
and its myth was pretty well taken apart by the twin disciplines of science and philosophy. And when science and philosophy split from storytelling, we had the beginning of the tragic split between the life of the spirit, which is irrational, and the life of the mind, which is very rational. Now, there's a great deal more to all this on both sides than I have time for this morning. But I think what I've said gives you an idea of how the church worked to combine the storytelling tradition of Israel with the more philosophical tradition of Greece. And the result of this was that the church created a magnificent architecture of doctrine and theology. The most dramatic of all of this being the blending of Jewish ideas about a loving God and Greek ideas about a magnificent humanity into the person of the Christ, who, as our church teaches, is fully human and fully God at one and the same time. Paul was the first to try and turn all of these stories that Jesus told into a coherent way to live. And one of the ways that he did this, we see in this morning's letter to the Corinthians, and that he tells everybody to stop bickering, please, and conform to the idea of Christ on the cross. He takes argument, which is a very Greek thing, and turns it into obedience to God which is lovely in theory, but it doesn't work as well in practice because to experience Christ crucified, unless you are Mary Magdalene and were there, is an ultimately mystical and personal experience. And the moment that I start trying to turn my mystical and personal experiences into doctrine, I take what works for me and turn it into conformity for you. Now anyone can see, even though I've simplified this a lot, that our church continues to live in this tension between the whole world of doctrine and the whole world of story, between the world of law and the world of grace, between that of fact and that of truth. And I am not sure that we're any closer to getting what Jesus came to really teach us than we were back then. The best that we've been able to do is hold on to it and hope that with thousands of years of practice, we might finally get it. And that brings me to today's most evocative passage. I translate it's a little bit more literal from the Greek to say, come after me rather than follow me. Follow me sounds very deliberate. Come after me means just I'm going, you come after me, and see what's going to happen. And the other part of the translation, instead of saying I will make you fish for people, is really I will make you fishers of people. And to be a fisher of people is to be a, quite a bit more expert than somebody who's simply casting their nets out into the water. But even if I translate it a little more literally, I'm not at all closer to what it means. What does it mean to be a fisher of people? Is it, as my friend Barry Bates suggested, 
an ultimately violent image about ripping people out of their familiar waters until they gasp for air and see the world in a whole new way? Is it like the evangelical church absolutely assumes, and there is no question about it, that to be fishers of people is to go out and round up converts and bring them to church? Is it, and this is a slightly more subtle idea, a critique of putting one's livelihood at the center of existence, that there are things more important? Or, and this could be true too, is it simply a good fish story? Now, I have been drawn to this story for years and years and years for a whole lot of quirky reasons. And one of them is because it's an outdoor story, it's set in the natural world, and it calls people to change their views while in the natural world. Received Christian tradition often seems to neglect the world of nature, which we here in California love so dearly. With the exception of the charming medieval bestiaries, where little animals and plants and insects all become teachers of the meaning of God's kingdom, Christian theology is pretty humanocentric. And indeed, it holds nature in a certain suspicion because they get all involved in this flesh and spirit stuff, and nature is the flesh. And the flesh must be carefully controlled so that we can achieve heights of spirit. And in that view, nature risks being held as captive by the church as ancient Israel was by Rome. And the story of Jesus risks being held captive as well. Now, in an attempt to try and put nature back in to Christian teaching, or more accurately, to rediscover where nature has been hiding after all of these centuries of theology, I read a lot of natural history. And I'm going to share with you a quote from a book called The View from Lazy Point by Carl Safina, but you will find this sentiment in just about any science text that you open up. And the sentiment is the following. The framework with which we run our lives and our world, our philosophy, ethics, religion, and economics can't seem to detect the risks that we are running at this time when there is so much climate change and we don't know what to do. That's what it can't detect. And he goes on to say, but how could they? They are ancient and medieval institutions out of sync with what we have learned in the last century about how the world really works. And my question is the problem that we are still living in a medieval worldview, or is the problem that we have no idea what our worldview is really trying to teach? Because it's really easy to blame outmoded institutions. But I wonder, since the life of faith is so very alive, is it faith's fault or is it our fault that we don't understand it? Which is where stories really help. Theology is kind of a done deal. It is a statement of proposition. 
But a story, it's got characters. It's got all kinds of different things that happen. It may or may not agree with what society is teaching at any given moment. And the stories that were told during the Christian Middle Ages are some of the most colorful and least resolved of any stories ever told. Indeed, Joseph Campbell says that everything that we are today was born in this wonderful mythogenetic mix of the 12th century. And what is the main story of the medieval 12th century but the quest for the Holy Grail? And who is one of the main characters in the quest for the Holy Grail but a fisher king? A fisher king who presides over a wasteland, a ruined earth, and a fisher king. Now, I cannot give you a consistent telling of the story because none of the sources agree with each other, but the story is basically this. The Holy Grail is the chalice that Christ used at the Last Supper. It may also have caught a bit of his blood when he was taken down from the cross, and it has the power to keep one alive forever. The Fisher King, on the other hand, has committed some kind of sin and has a wound in the groin. He is sterile. He, his wound is mortal, but he can neither fully die nor fully live because the grail keeps him alive. So the whole point of the quest is for a virtuous knight to turn up and ask a question that will release the Fisher King from his torment. Not an answer, not a doctrine, a question. And of course, a lot of people try. And two very famous people who turn up at the Grail Castle are Percival and Lancelot, and both of them are so completely dazzled by what they see. The liturgy of the grail with the lance, the spear, the, spear, the cup, and the chalice, that they are struck completely dumb and can't say anything, much less ask the healing question. And in the case of Lancelot, he is beautifully seduced by the Fisher King's daughter, Elaine, who shapeshifts herself into Guinevere so that Lancelot thinks that he is with his lady love, but he is not. And as a result of that, he, uh, Elaine conceives Sir Galahad, who becomes the purest and most saintly knight of all medieval romance. Now, look at this very Christian myth. Look at the medieval church. Do you think the medieval church would approve of such goings-on in the Grail Castle? Absolutely not. But hidden in all of that is this really interesting critique of purity. It's saying that purity is not about locking myself up and holding back. It says that real purity happens when I am broken, when I make mistakes and allow God to heal me. And it is only when I allow God to heal my brokenness that I can find my purity and return to the Grail Castle, and as Percival does, as Galahad does, because he gets to go back, and also Sir Bors, ask the right question and become the keeper. Unfortunately, we don't know what happens to the Grail after that. It disappears from the world of story, except it doesn't. With the 19th century 
and the return of this so-called new understanding, suddenly the grail myth becomes really active again. Wagner's opera Parseval, T.S. Eliot's poem The Wasteland, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. We've got Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. We've got, uh, let's see, Charles Williams wrote a grail romance. There are, and a whole genre of swords and sorcery medieval literature that tells me that far from being a dead story, the grail is a very live one and we are no closer to figuring it out than we were back then. All of which is to say there is hope. And welcome to the season of Epiphany. The season of Epiphany, the light shining in the darkness, is the season in which we are invited to let go of everything we thought we knew and enter the state of unknowing once again. It is the time when we can let go and let the light of Christ shine in our hearts and in our lives. Or, I'm going to give the last words this morning to Richard's father, Ben Helmer, because he sums up what Epiphany is about better than anybody. Epiphany is a season about proclamation and the power of God at work in God's people. A season when the church examines its life and witness and how it understands itself to be the incarnated Christ planted in local communities. It is to be both flesh and spirit. It is to be in our lives that story that saves. Or, if we want to put it more poetically, it is when we are able to tell how the imagination of God dripped its net, draped its nets into our waters and raised us up into the light. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.